Welcome to the Yogi MD podcast. It's Nadine, yoga teacher, health coach, and retired doctor, here to bring you and your body together, not in sickness, but in health. Thanks for taking this time for yourself. Today's guest is Dr. Timothy R. Jennings, who has been in private practice as a psychiatrist and certified master psychopharmacologist since 1997. Board certified in psychiatry by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology, Dr. Jennings is a highly sought-after lecturer and international speaker and the author of The God-Shaped Brain, The God-Shaped Heart, and today's subject, The Aging Brain. He is in private practice in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Thank you so very much for doing this. I've been so excited about this for a long time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I found out about the book because one of my uh, yoga students brought it to my attention. She brought it to class one Tuesday. One of her favorite activities is visiting bookstores. And uh, she's an avid reader. She loves to learn. And as soon as she showed it to me, I was intrigued. And I dove into it the same day. I ordered it. And I haven't been able to put it down. Thank you so very much. It's a wonderful and very meaningful topic for really everyone uh, to learn from. One of my favorite quotes from your book is, while we cannot affect the passage of time, we can affect our passage through time. We can make intelligent choices to maximize health and slow the decay so that we grow older with great vitality and retained abilities. I just love that. It really sums up a lot of your um, vision for writing the book. So thank you for that. You're welcome. And I've been surprised at how few people really realize that. Hmm. Well, our health is priceless, isn't it? And we are growing older as a society. So it is really important to think about how we travel through time. Yes, yes. I was very moved by your introduction as to why you wrote the book, your inspiration, your wife. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, and as I comment in there, initially over the years treating many seniors, that certainly has touched my heart. But over the last seven years or so, we've watched my mother-in-law, my wife's mother, slowly decline with uh, late-onset Alzheimer's dementia. And it's been just very sad to watch that happen, Uh, see the grief in my wife as she's... And just in the last two weeks, my wife went over to visit her her mom, and, and after they spent time together, my wife was getting to leave. They, her mother gave her a hug, and, and as she was leaving, her mother said to her, is your mom still alive? Oh, that's heartbreaking. And, right. And, of course, um, my wife just said yes, and she goes, that's nice. And so that, it's just so sad, mm-hmm. so sad to see that happen. And so with, with her mother getting dementia, of course, it increases my wife's risks. And so I became very passionate to uh, uncover and discover uh, what's going on with this late-onset dementia and what we can do to reduce the risk and even prevent this from happening. And I think the science is sufficient now that if we do the right lifestyle choices, that we can avoid getting the dementia even if we have a family history. We're talking late-onset Alzheimer's type specifically here. But the things in the book will also reduce your risk of vascular dementia as well. The gut instinct is to think there's only one type of dementia. Everyone's afraid of Alzheimer's. But can you speak a little bit about the different types of dementia? Right. So so what is dementia? Dementia is a functional uh, loss of ability. It requires the loss of memory. 
uh, with one of four cognitive domains, memory loss plus a loss of ability to do normal physical activities like uh, buttoning uh, buttons or tying shoes, uh, or loss of ability to identify um, normal objects that you can identify, or loss of normal language ability, can't speak normally like you used to, or um, cognitive loss like an inability to organize, plan, balance your checkbook, those types of things. One of those domains plus memory equals dementia. Now, any condition that damages the brain can cause that functional loss or dementia. Mm -hmm. So if you have Alzheimer's disease, that contributes to Alzheimer's dementia. If you have vascular disease, we get little tiny strokes throughout your brain, that causes vascular dementia. Parkinson's disease, Parkinson's dementia, and so forth. So any brain-damaging illness can lead to the syndrome known as dementia. Many people think that dementia is inevitable with aging. As long as we're getting older, it's something that's going to happen. Is that necessarily true? You know, that's, I'm so glad you brought that up because really until this book came out and I started doing some speaking and talking to people, I didn't realize that myth was out there. But yes, it is commonly believed that if you live long enough, you will get dementia. It's inevitable. There's nothing to do about it. Why try? But no, it's not true. Uh, dementia is abnormal aging. It's not normal aging. And so uh, if you do the, and so what I want people to know is that if you make the right lifestyle choices, you can age well and you can avoid getting dementia. And the data would say, even if you have a family history, so this is very exciting. Absolutely, yeah. Like I said, I really found reading your book very, very enlightening. I don't know anyone really who hasn't been touched with dementia in a family member or few, and you think, wow, what can I do? Or what's my life going to look like? And how is this going to impact my family? Because really, those are the people that mainly suffer. Right, right. That's exactly right. You talk a lot in your book about accelerating aging, accelerated aging rather, uh, versus dementia. Is there a difference between the two? So anything that, so accelerating aging, and when I talk about in the book aging, I'm not talking about chronologically existing. In other words, being alive or being in existence for many, many years. I'm talking about the functional loss or decline in abilities and vitality. So we're talking functional aging. I think most of us would prefer to live hundreds of years as long as we maintain vitalities and abilities. Mm -hmm. And so it's not chronological. It's the loss of ability. And so, no, um, we, we don't all age at the same rate, even though we go through time at the same pace. The, the choices we make in life can slow the decline or slow the loss and even uh, maintain our vitality and ability. Thus, while we may chronologically be the same age, some of us have older bodies or more decrepit or impaired or functionally compromised bodies. I don't know if you're old enough yet to have gone to some high school reunions, but, uh, but you know, when I've gone to some, I look around and there were some people that I went to school with, were, which were known as partiers. They were hard partiers, drinkers, smokers, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And you can look at them years later and they have aged faster than those who had a healthier lifestyle. That's an obvious one, which almost all of us in society see it. But it's not simply hard drugs, alcohol, and tobacco that accelerate aging. There's so many more things and there's other things that can slow it. So yeah, lifestyle and the choices we make it, it alter the trajectory in how we move through time. The book is very well laid out in terms of addressing different lifestyle issues um, that impact our risk of accelerating aging and also increasing the risk of acquiring dementia. So what are the risk factors that we can and can't control? You talk about genetics and epigenetics. What does that mean? 
So we can't change the genes that we inherit. That, that, that's the chromosomal information, genetic information with which we were born, and we don't get to, to change that information. However, epigenetics, epi means above, and genetics is the genome, are the set of instructions that sit above the genes telling the genes how to express themselves, which ones to turn on and which ones to turn off. And those sets of instructions are changeable by our lifestyle choices. The thoughts that we think, the foods that we eat, the medicines that we take, all of these various uh, um, activities we engage in in life alter how our genes are being expressed on a day-to-day basis. And so if we have certain genes that may be unhealthy, uh, the data shows that if you do healthy things, you can shut those genes down and turn mm-hmm. other genes on that mm-hmm. are more healthy for us. Mm-hmm. And so that's what this, the, why lifestyle is so important and healthy choices are so important because we can augment or impact how our genes are being expressed to move us to healthier um, platforms of living. People seem to think that there's a, a little bit of this witchcraft in terms of the mind and body really being connected. But what I really love about your book is that you're really laying out evidence, scientific evidence, that there is a definite connection between the way you think, the way you manage your relationships, the way you eat, the way you exercise, the way you sleep, that impact to the way your uh, mind the way you, ages. The way you meditate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So let's talk about the different um, categories that you address in the book. Let's start with diet. What can you speak to in terms of the literature that significantly impacts how we age? So let's let's do the big overview first. Okay. And then if you want to, we can get down to specific food choices if okay. you want to at some point and what the evidence is about that. But the big overview are um, that three dietary patterns have been studied at, at length looking at both uh, correlation between brain volume, cognitive function, memory performance, and so forth. And two dietary patterns were identified to actually uh, be associated with better brain volume and better cognitive performance, and one dietary pattern with worse brain volume and worse performance and worse already risk of dementia. And the two patterns that, uh, dietary patterns that were beneficial to the brain were either a Mediterranean diet or a whole food vegan diet. Mm-hmm. And whole food vegan, I have to emphasize, that doesn't mean eating lollipops every day because lollipops are vegan. Okay? <laughs> okay? Whole food vegan means meaning fruits, nuts, grains, vegetables, whole foods. And if you eat whole food vegan or a Mediterranean diet, which is really high in fish oil, olive oils, uh, and not a lot of highly processed foods, those two diets correlate with better aging, better um, brain volume, better memory, less dementia. The diet that is associated with loss of brain volume and accelerated aging and and increased dementia is the American diet, the fast food, junk food, uh, pizzas, croissants, donuts, uh, candies, uh, and all the fast food stuff that we eat, this highly inflammatory diet, and that diet accelerates the aging. That's the big overview landscape on the principles of diet. Mm -hmm. What is it about the American diet, which, to be quite honest, uh, people tend to lean towards because it's convenient? Yes, so there's multiple problems with the American diet. It's not just one, uh, but multiple problems. One, often devoid of um, important nutrients that we need. It tends to be high in sugar. Sugar is highly oxidizing and inflammatory. It, it increases, uh, it's, uh, the foods themselves have byproducts of the way they're prepared that are oxidizing, advanced glycation end products and um, other things that increase oxidative stress, which is damage to your tissues in your body. They um, increase our risk of diabetes, causing insulin resistance, and uh, insulin resistance is one of the problems in the brain that drives the whole Alzheimer's cascade. So there's a whole host of problems with the American diet, uh, and in fact, 
and it alters gut bacteria, the food. You get different bacteria in your gut depending on the food you eat. And the bacteria in the gut excrete all types of um, hormones and chemicals that react back upon your brain and affect um, energy metabolism and impact obesity rates and cognition and, and mood. And so the, the good bacteria, guess what causes them to grow? Vegetables and the vegan diet, the bad bacteria, uh, uh, high uh, processed food and, and, uh, and animal-based diet. So what if you know, there's a lot, a lot of different variables. What if you're a person who doesn't necessarily want to be completely vegan? What would you suggest? Right. And so I would suggest a pescatarian diet, which is a diet that includes oily fish. And that would be the meat to, to get. And if you're going to eat other meats, um, which some people really just are going to do, then I really encourage you to get only organic range-fed. Do not get the commercial meats. Those things are just so oxidizing. There's so many things in them that are not healthy. So if you're going to do it and eat only then the lean aspects, the, the protein itself and not the fat and, and all those things. But, but I would tell you, if you the best would be to just do the pescatarian diet. Eat just the oily fish like the salmon and sardines and mackerel and those types of things. You talk a lot about oxidation, oxidative stress, and uh, the book as well being very damaging. Inflammation is really woven through a lot of uh, the chapters. Can you talk a little bit? Let's break them down first. What is oxidation again, and why is it uh, harmful? So oxidation is when um, various molecules that have oxygen, that's be, that, uh, oxygen molecules that can react with other molecules, uh, then the oxygen molecules damage those other molecules. Example, you cut an apple, you leave the apple out on your counter mm -hmm. for a couple hours, you come mm -hmm. back a couple hours later, and the apple has browned. That browning is the oxygen in the atmosphere damaging the apple. Uh, same thing with um, uh, you leave a chain outside in, uh, for a few days and it starts to rust. That's the oxygen oxidizing the, the chain. So those types of processes can happen in our bodies to our body tissues mm -hmm. when reactive oxygen species, molecules with oxygens uh, that are available to interact can damage our body. That's oxidation and that accelerates aging. And things that increase oxidation, illegal drugs, tobacco, heavy alcohol use, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and these unhealthy diets that are high in oxidizing um, uh, molecules. Okay? Then um, inflammation. What is inflammation? Inflammation is your body's response, the normal, normal inflammation is your body's response to either an infection or an injury mm -hmm. where your body has these eloquent and sophisticated, mm -hmm. intricate um, cascade of, of molecules and messengers that, that come rushing to the scene in order to attack and kill the infecting viruses or bacteria or to mobilize the repair systems of the body to repair a broken bone or stitch together a laceration and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so inflammation is the body's response to either infection or injury to destroy the infection or repair the injury. And so inflammation symptoms would be things like swelling, fever, hotness, redness, mm -hmm. um, all the things you see when you get inflammation, and that's the body's um, response to that. Normally, after the infection clears, the injury heals, the inflammation system turns off and goes away. Yes. And, that's a, and that has no long-term negative consequence. However, we can be chronically inflamed, and if we have chronic inflammation, then the chronic inflammation causes increased release of these oxidizing molecules from our immune system. The immune system creates oxidizing molecules for the purpose of attacking and killing bacteria and viruses so that they can destroy them when we're getting an infection. However, if we're chronically inflamed, 
then those oxidizing molecules will damage our own body tissues and accelerate aging. What is it that can turn on this uh, inflammatory cascade? Yes. Well, in addition to the food choices that we make, anything that causes chronic mental stress. So chronic worry, chronic relationship problems, human conflict, arguments, hostility, combat situations, mm -hmm. as well as belief systems in a, in a deity that is fear-inducing and anxiety-provoking. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, that chronic worry, chronic stress, chronic fear activates the brain's stress circuitry, which tells the immune system you're under threat, and under threat you activate your immune system to prepare for any potential enemy invaders like bacteria and viruses, so you start releasing oxidative um, molecules to potentially kill any invaders that might come because you're under a stress. But there is no acute invader, so you're just releasing this chronic inflammation which accelerates aging and increases your risk of dementia. So essentially what's happening is that we have a very normal mechanism that is protective, but it's supposed to occur. Uh, there's supposed to be a bit of a plateau, and then we need a recovery time where we do come back down to baseline. Right, and then the system should turn itself off. And, and the healthy things, that when we actually live healthy lifestyles, the system will turn itself off typically, okay? But what happens is we lead very unhealthy lifestyles. So we lead lifestyles that we are inflaming ourselves with foods. That's kicking up the inflammatory cascade. Mm -hmm. We're inflaming ourselves with ongoing conflicts in our interpersonal life as the families are breaking down. Mm -hmm. We don't have that support structure we used to have. And then our media. Our media with lots of the entertainment that we put out there and we ingest into our minds, mm -hmm. if you actually evaluate and grade the emotional reaction you're having to the media, whether it's news, and news has moved away from information sharing to <laughs> entertainment, entertainment okay? and much of it is designed to inflame fear, mm -hmm. to cause fear, and the TV programming, the, the dramas and the, and the various action programs are designed to get you on the edge of your seat, and that's activating in your brain your stress pathways, and so we are really gearing and training and activating constantly the stress pathways, and people uh, rarely are, are taking time to de unplug, disconnect, unwind, and turn the system off. And so we're just overstressing our entire bodies constantly. I think part of the problem is uh, lack of awareness that these things are so toxic because we take them for granted. They're in the background. And then not giving ourselves permission. We think it's selfish, especially women. We think it's selfish to take time away and to sit quietly or to do something that purely gives the individual pleasure that leaves everyone else out or I should be taking care of my family or I should be taking care of this and it's just not right for me to sit quietly or go have a bath, something so simple. So one of the things I talk about in the book, and this is really important, people get this philosophical landscape. I think you probably picked it up as I went through the book and that's the landscape of what I call design law, the laws upon which reality are designed to function. Some people call them the laws of health or the laws of physics, just how reality works. And it plays directly into this issue of getting the rest that we need, both physical and mental rest. Mm -hmm. And that's the law, uh, the, the law of exertion first. If you want something to be stronger, you must exercise it. If you want stronger muscles, you've got to lift weights. If you want stronger musical ability, you've got to practice your instrument. Stronger math skill, you've got to work problems. Okay, so, but there's a corollary to the law of exertion, and that's the law of restoration. Mm -hmm. And the law of restoration is after a finite being exerts or expends a resource, we must rest and recover mm -hmm. before we have more resource to expend. Mm -hmm. If mm -hmm. we don't rest and recover, we exhaust and burn out. And so this guilt about 
um, you know, I've got more to do, more to do, more to do, leads people to break the law of restoration. And it's like any other law of health. If you break the laws of health, you will suffer in your health. You cannot be healthy outside the laws of health. So understanding those laws of health, it's important people come back and establish what are the minimum um, uh, criteria that my health needs in order for me to maintain wellness. How many hours of sleep, an adult, seven to eight hours a night? How much water? How much oxygen? How much mm -hmm. food? How much mm -hmm. mental decompression time? Mm -hmm. And this is critically important when I talk about in the last chapter caregiving for an elderly a loved one who is dementing. One of the things that will burn people out is they don't understand that you uh, can't care for somebody if you yourself become um, an invalid. If you become compromised in your health, then you can't care for them. So the first principle in healthcare uh, uh, giving is to maintain the health of the caregiver. Hmm. Okay, and if you and you have to establish those baselines. And so back to the parent, the mother, establish what those are. And, and, then, and then keep them vigilantly, and only in true short-term emergencies do you step outside of those. Well, it's interesting you bring that caregiver um, aspect up, because I was having a very interesting conversation with my husband recently about end-of-life. He had a father with dementia, and I said to him, if there were a time, and if that were to happen, I'm not sure if I would need help, and maybe I would need to have you an assisted living facility? And he was very, very offended. It was almost as if I'd be shirking my responsibility and dishonoring our relationship by sending him away in quotes. Right, and so that's where you have to have the conversation. And I, I, I spelled this out in the decision-making tree in, in the last chapter, I think it's in the book of the second last chapter, where I talk about this, and that is, the decision is not based on heart's desire. Mm -hmm. And your husband uh, was responding to, don't you have a heart's mm -hmm. desire to mm -hmm. care for me? Don't you love me enough to care for me? And so it, it feels in his response as if I'm being abandoned or not cared for anymore. Yes. And that's what he's reacting to. However, your position was not about heart's care. It was just the opposite. Because I care about you, if your condition gets to a certain point, that the objective needs of your medical condition are beyond my capacity to provide, then if I care about you, I get the professional help you need. And that has to be conversed and it has to be discussed. For instance, I tell people, if your mother or your loved one had a heart attack and needed bypass surgery, would you throw them up in the kitchen table and crack their chest and try and do it on your own? <laughs> of course you wouldn't. Even if they just broke a femur, you wouldn't try to set the bone on your own. Okay, that what, what drives the need to go to the hospital or a higher level of care is the objective needs of the medical condition itself. Mm -hmm. Even if drives. you can't see it. That's right. And so that's where it's important before you get to that point to step back and, and define what are some of those conditions. Inability to sleep through the night and wandering confused to the mm -hmm. house or the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Well, that's mm -hmm. a medical condition. Mm -hmm. And so there's lots of them, but you can define those. And when you reach some of those criteria, then we need additional help. You spoke a little bit about exercise being important. Why is it scientifically proven to be helpful? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. And exercise, again, multifactorial. Exercise does multiple things. We'll talk physical exercise first and then mental exercise. Okay. okay. Physical exercise, uh, when you exercise regularly, your muscles produce something called interleukin-10, which is an anti-inflammatory factor that reduces inflammation in the body. 
Thus, it reduces oxidative species, reducing oxidative stress on the body. So one factor reduces inflammation when you exercise regularly. And we're talking reasonable exercise. We're not talking that extreme exerciser of the Ironman or the marathon runner. That exercise actually is so damaging to the body, it actually does not have antioxidant benefit. It's, it's damaging because it's so extreme. But I don't think that's the majority of our listening audience. <laughs> so reasonable exercise that's not that super extreme exercise is antioxidant and reduces inflammatory cascades in the body. Number two, it resensitizes insulin receptors. So insulin resistance reduces. And as insulin resistance reduces, not only do we metabolize better in our, in our bodies, in our brain – Insulin is responsible for a whole host of things, including memory formation, but more importantly, clearing proteins out of the brain that are associated with Alzheimer's dementia, amyloid protein. And so as we resensitize the insulin receptors, then we're able to clear these proteins and some of these toxic byproducts out of the brain, which reduces oxidative stress on the brain and breaks a cascade of events that contribute to Alzheimer's dementia. Yes. Three, exercise uh, turns on in the brain all the known neurotrophins. Neurotrophins, neuro means neurons. Trophins are, are proteins that make uh, the neurons grow stronger. They're like fertilizer for the brain. Mm-hmm. And all the known ones are turned on by physical exercise. And so we can sprout new connections and certain parts of the brain make new neurons. We increase vascularization so we get better blood flow, better oxygenation, better removal of um, byproducts of metabolism out of the brain. So everything is benefited when we do regular physical exercise. Good for we your also, memory. Yep, good for the memory. And in Mm -hmm. fact, studies show people over 65 who begin exercising have growth in the hippocampus, which is where new memories take place. Mm -hmm. They've measured 2% growth, which was the equivalent of reversing two years of aging. That's really powerful. Yeah, their brain looked two years younger after I think it was 30 or 45 days of exercise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You mentioned mind exercise. Yes. So then, and both of these are in the law of exertion. Now, your brain... Just like the muscles, if you exercise your brain, your brain will sprout new connections and make new pathways. But exercising the brain, uh, we're talking about mental exercise, means new learning. Hmm. Okay, To recite a memorized passage of a song or a poem or a Bible verse mm-hmm. and recite that over and over again every day is not new learning. You're not learning anything. It's rote. There's mm-hmm. really no very, very little effort going into that. Mm-hmm. Doing so, doing the same activity over again every mm-hmm. time the same way is not new learning. That mm-hmm. that is rote. Mm-hmm. New learning really means contemplating, studying, and assimilating new either ideas, mm-hmm. facts, understanding, abilities, and so it can be. Uh, uh, learning of how to say ballroom dance that you've never done before. Mm-hmm. Okay? And that's good because it's physical, you're moving, and you have to think and learn the new steps. It's mind-body coordination, too. Right. But if you've done that your whole life, it's, it's still good exercise to do, but it's not going to have the cognitive benefit just to rotely go through the steps you don't have to think about. What you're really saying is get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Well, what I'm saying is that be comfortable with learning. Be a, be a person who loves to learn. Be, see the world as, as uh, always a new discovery to be made and a new insight to have. And, and so be a person who loves to learn. One of the things that I think our society does is it dumbs people down. It entertains them mm-hmm. rather than stimulates them to be thinkers and contemplators. Mm-hmm. It, 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 and in theatrical television, the impact of theatrical programming is to shut down the thinking parts of our brain. It activates the emotion circuits, but it, it teaches people not to think. And you can see this when you actually watch a show. And if you were to say to somebody that you're with and it's one of their favorite shows and you point out how stupid a plot line is, well, that's really stupid. That doesn't make sense at all. Mm-hmm. They will say you're not supposed to 
think about it. <laughs> okay? Theatrical entertainment teaches people to suspend reasoning and to believe the unreasonable and the irrational. And then you look at what's happening in our society when so many people have seemed to have lost critical reasoning skills and get manipulated so easily by you know certain types of speakers or or, or public figures. Oh, absolutely. And that's where I was leading. Uh, there's this dumbing down. There's political campaigns, political commercials now that we're starting to see as we're getting closer to November. It's all about trashing the opponent. There's no thought. Right. And you're exactly right. And discerning people. And so the point for our brain exercise is we want to exercise our brain circuits to reason and think and look and learn how to be evidence-based, not Mm proclamation-based thinkers, Mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. Not claims-based thinkers. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not not taking a political stance when when I use this example, but this is a historical example which shows the difference, okay? There was a, there was a time in the past where, where somebody said publicly in a claim, I did not have relations with that woman. <laughs> and then that woman brought out a dress with evidence on it. The evidence for people who are evidence-based thinkers spoke more loudly, more clearly, more, more um, definitively than did the proclamations. And learning how to differentiate between claims and proclamations and actual evidence mm-hmm. is, a, is a certain level of maturity and requires a certain level of critical reasoning skills to be developed. Something that came up uh, recently in one of my discussions with my students is, uh, and this with my population, tends to be an issue, getting enough sleep. Not just getting enough sleep, but what does it mean to get enough sleep? What what is even normal sleep? I think a lot of people don't really know what it means. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And so first thing to know about why sleep is important. Your brain is about 1% to 2% of your body weight, 1% to 2%. But it uses 20% of your body's energy, which means it's highly metabolic, burning up lots of fuel. And when you burn up fuel, you have waste products, byproducts of metabolism that have to be cleared out of the brain. It is during sleep that the neurons will contract and expel out of the inside the cytoplasm of the neuron into the cerebral spinal fluid, the byproducts of metabolism, so it can be cleared out of your brain. Mm -hmm. If we don't get normal amounts of sleep on a chronic basis, not on an occasion basis where you're taking a trip and jet lagged or something, but on a chronic basis, then these byproducts of metabolism don't clear, and we increase oxidative stress on our brain and can accelerate all kinds of health problems, including uh, uh, mood disorders and dementia. Mm -hmm. So one thing is it's good for our brain's physical health to get to sleep. Second, memories consolidate in sleep. Mm -hmm. So when you're studying and you're putting efforts in to learn, I teach college students this, it's during sleep that those memories are transferred out of the circuits of the short term into other cortical regions for long-term storage where you can retrieve them more easily later. So they did studies of, of college students and randomized them to two groups and gave them a memorization, memorization period where they would memorize randomly made up new words. And then they tested both groups immediately after the memorization period. Then one group got to go sleep. The other group was kept awake and they were brought back 12 hours later and both groups tested again. Not only did the group that slept score better than the group that did not sleep, they scored better than they themselves did immediately after the testing. Mm-hmm. I mean, after the memorization period. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's during sleep that memories consolidate. And so sleep is critically important to brain function. Now, what is normal sleep? Many people have the idea that normal sleep is you go to sleep, 
and you wake up eight hours later. Yes. You slept eight hours. Yes. This is not normal. That's not that's not sleep. Here's normal sleep. You go into stage one. That's that real light sleep. That's where you hear grandma snoring on Thanksgiving afternoon. You go, grandma, you're snoring. She goes, oh, I wasn't even asleep yet. <laughs> it's still so light. You're not even sure you're asleep yet. Mm-hmm. Then it goes into deep, slow wave sleep. Then rapid eye movement. And that's where you do your dreaming. And then you wake up. Then stage one, two, into the deep sleep. REM, rapid eye movement, REM sleep. Wake up. All night long, you're in these cycles of stage one through the deep sleep to REM, wake up. From the time you enter stage one to the time you exit a REM cycle is anywhere between 70 and 120 minutes. Mm -hmm. So a little over an hour to two hours. Mm -hmm. So if you're waking up through the night every hour, a few minutes to two hours, as long as you're able to get back to sleep in a reasonable amount of time, that's normal sleep. As an adult, you need five of those episodes, which is about seven and a half hours of sleep a night. That's what you need. Now... Many of my patients have come to see me, and when they're young, they go to sleep, and they think they sleep through the night because those wake-ups are just a few seconds, they're just enough for them to turn, shift in the bed, and yes. they fall right back to sleep, and they have amnesia for the wake-up. They don't remember they woke up. Mm-hmm. They think they slept through the night. Then when they get older, they wake up, and they get a bladder call, and they got to run to the bathroom, mm-hmm. and, and now they remember waking up, and they think, oh, I'm not sleeping good anymore, yes. and then they turn to pharmaceuticals. Yes, yes. They turn to drugs to try mm-hmm. to drug their sleep, but the, most of the medicines used for sleep alter sleep architecture and interfere with memory consolidation and some of them actually contribute to the increased risk of dementia. And so as I teach my patients this, the vast majority are able to get off sleep meds and just give themselves permission to wake up, go to the bathroom, come back, get to sleep in 10, 15 minutes again. There's no negative consequence from that at all. So well, it's not just about the quantity, it's quality of sleep. Right, exactly. And 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 so a drug sleep is not as good as a non-pharmaceutical sleep. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And so many of my patients, what their real problem was not that they had a sleep problem. They had worry about their sleep. Yes. And the worry about their sleep caused them to ruminate, dread, stress. And that stress, then when you stress, you activate the stress circuits. Stress circuits increase adrenaline. Mm-hmm. Adrenaline then keeps you from sleeping. And mm-hmm. so they're really being driven. And once they realize, oh, this is normal, okay, well, then I'm allowed to wake up. I don't have to stay. There's this pressure to not wake up. And that's what they're afraid of. And it's once you give them permission, it's okay. And they stop worrying about it. Then they sleep much better. Spirituality. Why is having a spiritual practice important? That's a great question. Um, because we're finite beings, number one. And there's so much that's out of our control. Uh, we don't know the future. Uh, we can't control the world around us. Uh, if we're honest with ourselves, there's so many variables that are beyond our knowledge. Of that it becomes existentially anxious for us. Uh, anxiety related to our existence, our mortality, the future, unknowns, these types of things. And so belief in a benevolent, loving, compassionate, forgiving, gracious higher power is actually very healthy for human beings and it brings a greater sense of internal peace. We, we take responsibility for making the decisions in governance of ourselves that are ours to make in the healthiest way we know how to make them. But we live in a state of trust to other, uh, trusting the future and how things turn out to a higher power rather than taking future and outcome burdens on ourselves. That's psychologically and physiologically very healthy. Having said that, there are many God concepts and constructs and belief systems out there that are actually quite harmful to people because what they do is they incite increasing internal states of fear, guilt, shame, anxiety, prejudice, judgmentalism, conflict, 
hostility, and all of these types of things that stem out of certain religious and I should say religious views are damaging to the human being and increase inflammatory cascades, increase the risk of dementia. The great landscape is that the healthiest worldview that has the best um, impact on your brain and body and promotes the longest life is the belief in a benevolent, compassionate, loving God concept that promotes reasoning and thinking in an evidence-based approach to life and respecting the liberties of others. The next healthiest worldview, though, is belief in no God. As long as you have a benevolent worldview, uh, compassionate, respect the freedoms of others, mm -hmm. um, and so forth. The worst worldview is the belief in an authoritarian God in which you believe you must punish, and uh, that you're under the threat of punishment by your deity, and so you live in fear of that threat of punishment, and then you have to do lots of things to appease the wrath and take the payments and all this kind of stuff, mm -hmm. and it leads you then to authoritarian treatment of other people, to force other people to conform to your way of things, and punishing other people who break what you think are the right rules, and so forth. This worldview is the most harmful, not just for relationships and society, but for the brain and the body as well. How does it do so? Because it activates the amygdala, which is your stress circuitry, which mm -hmm. activates your immune system, which activates inflammatory cascades, which increase oxidative stress and leads to greater mental health problems and, and accelerated aging and dementia. It's really interesting that you bring that up and not something that you would necessarily think about um, in this discussion that we've been having about um, affecting your body and, and maintaining your physical and mental health. But I see this time and time again with people who approach me and say, well, I can't do yoga because it's a religion. It's against my God. And, you know, they, they close themselves off to it because of this fear, as you say, of being punished for approaching something, first of all, which is not a religion. And it, it shortchanges, I think, a person because you're not really using critical thinking to really go and investigate yourself what this practice is really about. So let me see if I can help you with this because I've had a lot, done a lot of research on the uh, Eastern meditation uh, elements, religion, and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I've had a lot of these objections come up as well. And the data shows that um, practicing a, a, a mindfulness meditation is quite physiologically uh, healthy for people, uh, psychologically reduces stress, it reduces blood pressure, reduces heart rate, less pain medicines after surgery, better cognition, mm -hmm. better attention, lower mm -hmm. risk of, of depression, lower risk of dementia. So it's physiologically healthy because the meditation calms the amygdala, which lowers this entire inflammatory cascade. Here's the problem that historically and, and even uh, contemporary today, many people have equated this form of meditation with a, with a pursuit of the divine. Okay, And I would point out this way. This is the analogy I use. If, if we do regular physical exercise, like, uh, say, jogging uh, a 5K on a regular basis, we know that if you do that, you get lower heart rate. You get lower blood pressure. You need less pain medicines after surgery. You get better brain performance. You get less depression. You get less dementia. All the same benefits you get when you do regular physical exercise. Nobody disputes that. But what happens if a group came along and taught people that you have to do that physical exercise in order to find God? <laughs> See, there'd be objections to that. Rightly so. You don't have to do that exercise to find God. However, doing the exercise and having a healthier brain, having a healthier brain and reduced anxiety and worry and stress might enhance your ability when you do pursue a relationship with God. You might be sharper, quicker, able to, to connect uh, uh, abstract concepts more quickly because you have a healthier brain. That might be true, but, but you don't have to run to pursue God. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, and so this type of meditation is a mental exercise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, and when you do a mental exercise, you get benefits of exercise. And so I tell people to separate the meditation from a pursuit of the divine. They're not the same. And 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 groups that do merge them, and there are groups in this world that do merge them. That you 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 through the meditation find your connection with the divine, mm -hmm. uh, then I, I would say that you just let them have their view, but you don't buy into it any more than a group that says, well, we run in order in our running, we come close to God and running. Well, fine, okay? Mm -hmm. But let them have that view, but you don't necessarily uh, espouse to that view. I appreciate that answer. In closing, this is a question I love to ask everyone. What is your definition of being healthy? My definition of being healthy is living in harmony with the protocols upon which life is constructed to operate on all domains. So living in harmony with the laws of health. But these are not just physical. They're also relational. They're thought processing. There are certain patterns of thinking that are actually healthy for us and some that are not. And then there's um, also spiritual ones. And so, for instance, we were not designed for conflict between people. That's not how we were designed. We were designed for loving other people, mm -hmm. for caring for other people, for mm -hmm. having other people love us in return. Mm -hmm. That's how we were designed. And, we, and the, the, all the data shows when people have those types of relationships, they thrive. Mm -hmm. When people mm -hmm. have conflict in relationships, then there's always health problems, whether it's marriage relations, whether it's race relationships, whether it's national relations, or polit political relationships. Uh, and so when I was in the military, we were taught that the stress reaction of combat is a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. Combat is abnormal. It's not how we're designed. Just as same as pain and swelling is normal when you smash your finger with a hammer. Mm -hmm. That swelling and stress reaction is the normal reaction to an injury. So health is defined by living in harmony with all of the design laws upon which we were constructed. Physical, relational, psychological, and spiritual. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Yeah, you too. And now it's time for practical tips. I sincerely hope we have ignited your curiosity today. We barely even scratched the surface of the wealth of information in this book. Each chapter ends with teaching points, which are a summary of the material in the chapter, and an action plan, a list of things to do to apply what you've learned. Therefore, today, the body, mind, and spirit tips are Read the Aging Brain. Thank you so much to Leslie Sosrowski for her recommendation of the book. See you next time.